This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Euro Classics is all about collector cars, from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euro Classics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot com. Welcome back to the Collector Car Podcast. This episode, I'm covering 100 cars that changed the world. That sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? Well, there are a lot of outstanding, stupendous, incredible cars that have impacted the automotive world in different ways. And we are going to go all the way back to the 1880s. So this will be a three or four part series. I will cover a few decades at a time. So for this particular episode, I will review the cars that changed the world from 1880 through the 1920s. Now, many of these cars I am not familiar with, and you all know I'd like to look up the values of these cars using Haggerty's valuation tools. Well, some of these cars are so old that they are not in the database. A few of them actually surprised me, so I will not have Haggerty values. I will not have Haggerty trends. For this particular episode, as we get into the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, I will have more information on them. So this podcast was inspired by a book ironically called 100 Cars That Changed the World, The Designs, Engines, and Technologies That Drive Our Imaginations. And I took basically that list and I kind of customized it a little bit. I did some research. I sourced information from a lot of different websites. And as we go through each one, I will tell you where I found it. Now, you should be able to find these on my website at thecollectorcarpodcast.com. I'm trying to catch up on some of my show notes and have them posted as a blog. So please be patient. They will be there eventually. All right. Well, we are going to start way back in 1886 with the Benz Patent Motor Wagon. And this is from Daimler.com. There's actually quite a few of these because Daimler and Mercedes were so instrumental in the beginning of the automotive industry. Quite a few of these resources are from Daimler.com. The first stationary gasoline engine developed by Carl Benz was a one-cylinder, two-stroke unit, which ran for the first time on New Year's Eve, 1879. Benz had so much commercial success with this engine that he was able to devote more time to his dream of creating a lightweight car 
powered by a gasoline engine in which the chassis and engine formed a single unit. The major features of the two-seat vehicle, which was completed in 1885, were the compact high-speed single-cylinder four-stroke engine installed horizontally at the rear, the tubular steel frame, the differential, and three wire-spoked wheels. That is key. This is a three-wheeler. It is not the traditional four-wheeler. The engine output was, get this, 0.75 horsepower. <laughs> not even a full horse, like three quarters of a horse, maybe a pony. That's a pony power right there. Details included an automatic side intake, a controlled exhaust valve, valve, high voltage electrical vibrator ignition with spark plug, and water thermosiphon evaporating cooling. Wow. All right. On January 29, 1886, Carl Benz applied for a patent for this vehicle powered by a gas engine. That was quote unquote. The patent number 37435 may be regarded as the birth certificate of the automobile. In July 1886, the newspapers reported on the first public outing of the three-wheel Benz patent motor wagon model number one. All right, the next car on our list is very similar to this that car. It's the 1886 Daimler. In the same year, just 100 kilometers away, Daimler presented his motor carriage, considered the world's first four-wheeled automobile. Essentially, this automobile is a light coach in which a modified and more powerful version of the grandfather clock <laughs> was installed. Yeah, that's interesting. Having recognized other areas of application for his engines at an early stage, in 1886, Daimler already was giving thought to motoring boats, rail vehicles, and aircraft. Wow, that guy was pretty innovative. All right, the next one is a car I am not familiar with, an 1893 Dura. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct or not. This is from AmericanHistory.com. This experimental vehicle is one of the earliest American-made automobiles. On September 21, 1893, Frank Dura road-tested the vehicle a second-hand carriage with a gasoline engine in Springfield, Massachusetts. In 1896, hit Frank, his brother Charles, and financial backers found the, founded the Dura Motor Wagon Company, the first American company that manufactured and sold automobiles. Thirteen production models were made. The only surviving example is in the collection of the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Wow. That is pretty interesting. So this forerunner was donated to the Smithsonian in 1920 and was restored in 1958. Wow. We're going back here when it was donated in the 1920s. Now, at that time, it was almost 30 years old. All right. In 1901, we have the Mercedes 35 horsepower car. The first modern car was designed by William Maybach, chief designer of Daimler, in 1900. The state-of-the-art 1,000-kilogram car with a characteristically low center of gravity was made for was the first vehicle to bear the Mercedes name. Standout features of the new car included visionary contours, marking the final break from coach construction and the powerful drivetrain. The Mercedes was propelled by a completely new light alloy engine cooled by Maybach's new honeycomb radiator. These ingredients combined to make the 35-horsepower the first super sports car in the history of our brand, at least when fitted at, out as such, since the car was supplied in a range of body styles according to customer preference, as was normal practice at the time. All right, this is again from Daimler.com. The car's top speed was 75 kilometers per hour or just under 90 
kilometers per hour with the light sports body. In 1901 as well, we have the Oldsmobile Curve Dash. Now, this is from CollinsFoundation.org. Ransom Eli Olds developed about 11 different cars, some of them electric, in cooperation with Thomas Edison between 1899 and 1900. The first production cars reached the market in 1901. 425 cars were built that year, making them the first mass-produced gasoline engine automobiles in the world! This car is a Model R, the first car to bear the name Oldsmobile, and the first of three models to be known as a curved dash Oldsmobile. Single-cylinder Oldsmobiles achieved 7 horsepower. Wow. Good for one chug per telephone pole. (laughs) The car could travel 20 miles an hour. In 1902, 2,500 units were produced, jumping up to almost 4,000 units in 1903. The curved dash Oldsmobile was the best-selling car in the world for seven years. And now they're gone. Oldsmobiles were typically delivered to to their owners by train, often with a sales representative on board to present it personally. All curved dash olds were right-hand drive and steered by a tiller. And to quote Raj from The Big Bang Theory, I can never find the tiller. (laughs) Anyways. All right, 1908, Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost. This is from R.M. Sotheby's description. The most desirable of the Rolls-Royce 40-50 HP horsepower Silver Ghosts are the early parallel bonnet models, those produced between the start of production in 1907 and 1915. Named for the distinctive design of their front end, these cars are unparalleled in their opulence, elegance, and Swiss watch-like craftsmanship. Value of these automobiles is measured by the knowledge of their history, the quality of their restorations, and most pointedly, by their age. To enthusiasts of Silver Ghost, the earlier the better is frequently the rule, and true bragging rights belong to that fortunate handful of survivors built in 1907 and 1908. And the Abraham Lincoln Penny came out in 1909. Just throwing in some fun facts there. All right, in 1909, we had the Ford Model T. Many Model T owners believe their cars had a self-healing feature. Put an ailing tin Lizzie, as they were known, under a shade tree, come back after a while, and she would be ready to go again. Sometimes this did happen. When it didn't, a variety of other remedies were available for what was arguably the most fixable car ever built. It didn't take much. Bailing wire, fish line, stovepipe, wax twine, chewing gum, or a paper clip. Because the Model T had no gauges, an owner didn't know how hot his engine was, how fast he was going, or how much fuel he had left. But he could buy what was needed. An entire industry grew up to provide Tin Lazy with what she didn't have. Anti-rattle devices, shock absorbers, single-shot lubricants, faux hoods, V-radiators, even speed equipment should you want to take the old girl racing. The Model T dominated the low-price automobile market. Henry Ford's obsession had not been to produce a cheap car. The industry was littered with those, most of them god-awful, but to produce a good, sturdy, independable car cheaply. In August 1913, when the assembly line at Ford's Highland Park moved for the first time, he owned that market. By October, the time necessary to build the Model T had been reduced from 12 and a half hours to 6 by year's end to an hour and a half. As mass production was refined, the price of a Model T, which had been introduced in 1908 at $850, was progressively decreased to a low of $290 in 1924. More than 16 million tin lizzies had been sold worldwide in 1927, 
when she was replaced by the Model A. Following the First World War, every other car on the globe was a Model T Ford. Tin Lazy had changed the world, and she was the single most important car in history. And what's interesting, that's why they're not worth a lot nowadays. I mean, because there's so many of them out there. They're not fast. Obviously, they're easy to work on, and they're really cool, and I would love to have one. All right, 1911 is the Mercer race about. No car ever built in America is more sought after or more prized, wrote auto writer Kim Purdy in his landmark 1949 book, King of the Road. Now, these quotes are from Hemmings.com. Most antique automobiles are not all that fast. This one is. Purdy thought the cars were so good that he somehow managed to buy one himself. Though on an auto rider's salary, we would bet that was in the days when the average Joe could eat canned soup for a year and save enough money to buy a Duesenberg. The Mercer was named out of respect for Mercury County in New Jersey, where the car was built. The idea for the car and the money to build it came from the pooled finances of two of the most prominent families in the country, the Coosers and the Roblings. Washington Roebling was the supervisor of the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, and his son was general manager of Mercer. The race about launched by Mercer in 1910 was completely emblematic of the age. In 1911, the Mercer 35R raceabout carried a list price of $2,250, which could easily buy a modest home. For that tremendous outlay of cash, what you got was a true production sports racing car, sans windshield, doors, or any provisions for occupant safety. But for that sacrifice, you got one of the period's most powerful engines, the T-Head 300 cubic inch inline four. The engine was capable of 58 horsepower at just 1,900 RPM, and could drive the car well into triple-digit speeds. The three-speed gearbox, unlike the clunky shifters of the time, was as vital to the car's success as the engine. And all this was mated to a chassis that allowed the car to perform even on the rudimentary roads of the era. Against its great rival Stutz, it competed for laurels at Indianapolis and the Vanderbilt Cup and Eglin Trophy Race. Legends such as Barney Oldfield and Ralph De Palma piloted Mercer's to victory in front of crowds in the thousands. The lowest slung Mercer race about is elemental yet elegant and awe-inspiring. Now, I want to say those things are pushing like a million dollars now. That's a whole lot of money for not a lot of metal. But, you know, like I just said, they're iconic cars. All right, the next one's the 1912 Cadillac. In 1908, the Cadillac Model K was awarded the DeWard Trophy for Interchangeable Parts. In 1912, the Cadillac Model 30 won the Dior Trophy again, this time for possessing an electric starter and lights. According to legend, the impetus for the electric starter occurred on the Belle Isle Bridge when a fellow stopped to help a woman crank start her car. Tragically, the starter handle was flung when the engine turned over, injuring the Good Samaritan, who later succumbed to his wounds. This man was a dear friend of then head of Cadillac, Henry Leland. Driven to act, Leland pushed for the development of the electric starter that first appeared in the the 1912 Cadillac Model 30. The the 1912 Cadillac Model 30 cost $1,800 and sported a four-cylinder, 40-horsepower engine. 1912 is the Stutz Bearcat, which was just mentioned with the Mercer Raceabout. Those are cool names. Mercer Raceabout, Stutz Bearcat. I'm in Cincinnati. We have Bearcats. They're kind of weird. So I don't know. Why Stutz was called a Bearcat. Interesting. Maybe we'll find out right now. And this is from topspeed.com. 
If the 1911 Mercer race bout was the first American car to find success using the race and sale philosophy, the Stutz Bearcat was among the first to parlay that supercar status to celebrity status. After mixing it up with the race about on tracks and winning 25 of the 30 races it entered in 1912, the Bearcat grew into something of an automotive icon, famously finding its way into the hands of George Cannonball Baker for a record-breaking 1915 cross-country run. That's probably where the Cannonball Run comes from. These exploits garnered the Bearcat a name recognition that still holds up 80 years after the company's demise. The Stutz Bearcat was born from racing. It started out in 1911 as the ideal motor car company and entered a car in its big hometown race, which just happened to be the Indianapolis 500. The car finished in 11th place, and the company's name was changed to founder Harry C. Stutz's name. The Bearcat debuted the very next year as the street version of the race car with very little changed. Stutz took racing very seriously. Baker's coast-to-coast run was undertaken in response to a Stutz buyer who was miffed about losing to the Mercers. Over the years, the Bearcat became known for its speed and performance, growing into a luxury speedster in the Roaring Twenties. All right, 1915 is the Cadillac V8. This is from gmheritagecenter.com. From its earliest days, Cadillac established itself as a leader in innovation and design. In 1905 and 1912, Cadillac was honored over all other cars in the world for design breakthroughs such as the first electric self-starter that I mentioned before and the application of precision interchangeable parts, which again, I mentioned just a while ago. Cadillac's breakthrough news in 1915 was the introduction of the world's first mass-produced V8. As a sales brochure of the time described it, This Cadillac speeds things along under the almost magic influence of this new power principle. Industry observers called it the ultimate in motor car engines. So this is a 314 cubic inch V8 with 70 horsepower. And the Cadillac's base price was $1,975. All right, let's move into 1919 with the Hispano Sueza H6. At the 1919 Paris Auto Show, the Hispano Sueza was launched with a keen eye for high craftsmanship and refined luxury it was endowed with having supplied v12 engines for fighter planes during the war hispano suezo was well prepared to make a remarkable inline six for their immediate post-war chassis in true aircraft form the engine was made from aluminum with a single overhead camshaft and a crankshaft made from a single piece of billet steel initially 135 horsepower as possible wow using a single Solex carburetor. This chassis was the first to be produced outside of Spain at the new Hispano Suiza factory in France. Thus, many of the cars were fitted with some of the finest French bodies and interiors. Now, this information was from supercars.net. All right, we're finally getting into the 1920s. Are you still with me? I hope you are. The 1921 Duesenberg Model A. Now, this is from thedrive.com. Both Frederick and August Duesenberg were known for building race cars, aircraft engines, and boat engines. When they first announced a Model A in 1920, they had planned on installing a conventional flathead engine. Late in the game, they threw a wrench in their production process and decided to scrap the flathead for the single overhead cam inline eight-cylinder they had been using in their race cars, which was a much more powerful engine. Frederick said the Model A was designed to outclass, outrun, and outlast any car on the road. The 260 cubic inch straight eight generated 88 horsepower with this hemispherical combustion chamber, also known as a Hemi. 
It was the first time a production car had a power plant of this size. Another innovation for Duesenberg's Model A was the addition of hydraulic brakes at each corner, years before any other major manufacturers were doing it. All right, 1922, the Lancia Lambda. The Lambda was one of the most innovative cars of the 20s with this chassis, independent suspension, and compact engine. Now, this is, again, from supercars.net. It was the first to feature a load-bearing monocoque body, which, which was adopted by almost every manufacturer 30 years later. Every Lambda was based around a steel monocoque, which eliminated the need for a heavy frame. Most of the body strength came from the drive shaft tunnel, which formed a lightweight backbone for the car. Passengers were seated beside the tunnel, allowing for lower roofline. Typically, cars of this period placed all the occupants above the drive shaft, which resulted in a higher center of balance. Aside from its revolutionary body, the Lambda was also endowed with independent sliding pillar front suspension and four-wheel brakes. Combining these attributes with ample power from a unique narrow-angle V4, the Lambda was a driver's car. So much so, Lancia prepared a Milia Milia version and raced it with good success at that race, usually placing in the top 10. Now we go to a big one, the 1924 Bugatti Type 35. Now this is from Bugatti.com. The Bugatti Type 35 is one of the icons of Bugatti's rich history and tradition. Back in 1924, the sports car was unparalleled in its technology, design, and performance, and the same still goes today. It is both an inspiration and a commitment. This makes the Type 35 one of the forefathers of our current hypersports car, the Chiron. The Type 35 was not just a race car. It was a technical masterpiece. For the first time ever, the company's founder used a crankshaft supported by two roller bearings and three ball bearings and this crankshaft is still seen as a feat of engineering to this day. It could run at speeds of up to 6,000 RPM to power the eight pistons in the engine, which started out with a capacity of just two liters. At the time, it was one of the only cars capable of achieving such power. Thanks to the other changes, such as using two carburetors instead of one, the car's power increased to around 95 horsepower. All right, we've got seven more to cover here. The next one's a 1924 Packard Single 8. In June of 1923, the company introduced the Packard Model 136 and 143, which brought with them the designs and the first application of four-wheel brakes by Packard. In June of 1923, the company introduced the Packard Models 136 and 143, which brought with them the designs and the first application of four-wheel disc brakes by Packard. They also introduced the Packard inline eight-cylinder engine, which had a 358 cubic inch displacement and delivered 85 brake horsepower at 3,000 RPM. The engine would gain a reputation for its stately power, smoothness, and performance. The smoothness of the engine was attributed to Packard's use of nine main bearings, a Lanchester crankshaft vibration damper, four-point engine mounting, and adoption of the 242 timing of the crank, bucking the usual practice of the era of designing the crankshaft as if it were two four-cylinder engines placed end-to-end. Standard equipment on these Packards included the bumpers, <laughs> manually operated windshield wipers, rear-view mirror, transmission-operated tire air pump, electric gas gauges, brake-operated stoplight, Watson stabilizers, motometer, and steel disc wheels, and more. All right, the next car is the 1927 Bentley 4.5 liter car. The Bentley 4.5 liter was a British car based on a rolling chassis built by Bentley Motors. Now, this is from our wonderful friends at Wikipedia. (laughs) 
Walter Owen Bentley replaced the Bentley 3 liter with a more powerful car by increasing its engine displacement to 4.4 liters, which is 270 cubic inches. A racing variant was also known as the blower Bentley. If you're wanting to do the quick math on transitioning cubic inches to liters, it's about like 60.4 cubic inches per liter. That's why a 302, 305, 302 Mustang is a 5 liter. Technically, that's around 305. So it's pretty easy math. A total of 724.5 liter cars were produced between 1927 and 1931, including 55 cars with a supercharged engine properly known as the blower Bentley. A 4.5 liter Bentley won the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1928. Though the supercharged 4.5 liter Bentley's competitive performance was not outstanding, it set several speed records, most famously by the Bentley blower number one, Mono Posto, in 1932 at Brooklands with a recorded speed of 222.03 kilometers per hour, which is 138 miles per hour. All right, the next one is the 1927 Mercedes-Benz S. This is from the Simeon Museum. Our friend, Dr. Simeon, if you've never been to that museum, it's right outside of the Philadelphia airport. Very close. You could Uber over there. It's one of the most incredible museums in the world. There was a confluence of unusual factors which led to the development of the iconic S-series of Mercedes-Benz cars. The ever-present Professor Ferdinand Porsche exerted his sporting influence on company decisions. After joining the factory in 1923, he produced a three-car team which handily won the 1924 Targa Florio race 1, 2, and 3. Leading the new Daimler-Benz teams, he was now responsible for the design of the new models, which included the different supercharged K-type, but mainly the low, beautiful S-series. The first cars had a 7,000cc overhead camshaft straight-six engine with a front-mounted roots-type blower. Running normally aspirated, the output was 120 horsepower, but when the accelerator pedal floored, the supercharger clutch engaged in spurts of horsepower up to 180 were achieved. So that was a quick little race car. All right, the next one's the 1929 Alfa Romeo 6C1750. Vittorio Giano worked with Fiat in its race team for 12 years, but in 1923, Enzo Ferrari encouraged him to depart for Alfa Romeo. After some persuasion, Giano left Fiat to join the young Ferrari at the budding mark. It was there that Giano made some of his greatest contributions to the automotive world. Among them was the 1929 Alfa Romeo 6C1750. Now this is from MotoringAuthority.com. The 6C traces its roots back to the 1927 6C1500, the latter figure signifying the engine's displacement. Power came from a 1.5 liter inline 6 engine derived from the legendary P2 Grand Prix race cars inline 8. Jano's job wasn't just to help Alfa Romeo win on the track, but also to port that success into the road cars. With his mission assigned, Jano reworked the P2's engine for road car use. Following the 6C1500, he oversaw the introduction of the 6C1750 in 1929. This time, the engine swelled to displace 1.75 liters and could accelerate to a seriously quick for the time top speed of 95 miles an hour. The gorgeous bodywork came from a handful of coach builders, including Zagato. The engine arrived in two flavors, a single cam version in the Turismo and a dual overhead cam variant in the Sport and later the Gran Turismo. Perhaps the most noted version of the car to come from Jano and Alfa Romeo in 1929 was the Super Sport or SS, later called the Grand Sport. The elegant Italian machine was available with a root supercharger 
They focus specifically on amateur racers and their needs. All right, three more. Now we're back to another Duesenberg, the 1929 Duesenberg Model J. The Model J Duesenberg has long been regarded as the most outstanding example of design and engineering of the classic era. It was introduced in 1929 and trading was halted on the New York Stock Exchange for the announcement. At $8,500 for the chassis alone, it was by far the most expensive car in America. With coachwork, the delivered price of many Duesenbergs approached $20,000, a staggering sum at a time when a typical new family car costs around $500. Now this is from sportscarmarket.com. Few would argue that the car's features did not support its price. Indeed, the Model J's specifications sound current today. Double overhead camshafts, four valves per cylinder, power hydraulic brakes, and 265 horsepower in naturally aspirated form, or 325 horsepower when supercharged. The Murphy Body Company of Pasadena, California, is generally recognized as the most successful coach builder for the Duesenberg Model J chassis. All right, two more. The 1929 MG M-Type Midget. Introduced in 1928, the MG M-Type Midget was undoubtedly the first in the long line of MGs that were to make the sports car so unbelievably popular throughout the world. When the Morris Minor debuted in 1928 by William Morris, this got Cecil Kimber thinking, and soon he set about producing an MG sports car based on it. The Midget was also Kimber's idea, but his boss, William Morris, made it actually happen. In October 1928, the M-Type Midget was launched at the Motor Show at Olympia Motor Show in London. Even early on, it was easy to see that the 10-foot-long two-seater M-Type would be successful, especially due to the immediate demand from the public. It wasn't until 1929 that the car finally went into production, utilizing mainly Morris components with slight modifications. Now this is from conceptcarswithaz.com. Since there wasn't enough time to allow for more individual components to be, to be designed and manufactured, along with the pressure to get the car on show at Olympia was the reason for the similarity. The body of the M-Type was light and very simple, with a fabric construction on a wooden frame. The boat-tailed midget was designed to compete with the Austin 7 sports models and other similar small sporting vehicles. All right, now our last car that changed the world from the 1880s to the 1920s is a 1929 Rolls-Royce Phantom II, and this is from AutoEvolution.com. Only four years after the introduction of the Phantom I, Rolls-Royce unveiled the new Phantom II in 1929. The previous model of Phantom, even if relatively new, was dated. Rolls-Royce had been using most of the car's underpinnings ever since 1912, and while it was easier to go the old way, it could have soon become a disaster as competition terribly increased with the models produced by Buick and Sunbeam especially. Thus, the Phantom II was built on a completely new chassis and used an improved version of the Phantom I engine, a 7.7-liter six-cylinder unit that developed 122 horsepower. The power plant was mated to a four-speed manual transmission. As most producers did at the time, Rolls-Royce only offered the chassis and the mechanical parts. The vehicle's body was the work of the coach builder selected by the future owner, some of the most famous coach builders were Park Ward, Brewster, Mulliner, Carlton, Hooper, and Henley. In total, Rolls-Royce sold 1,281 Phantom II chassis of all type. Wow, that was a lot. And that was just a couple decades. We have a lot more to go. So thank you for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Please like, share, comment. I need to get my listenership up, and I appreciate all of you that are listening right now. I will talk to all of you next week.
Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.